Welcome to the Change Lives, Changing Lives podcast, a ministry of Locust Hill Baptist Church in Travelers Rest, South Carolina. My name is Michael Hodge, Senior Pastor at Locust Hill. At Locust Hill, we celebrate the change that God alone could bring in our lives, and we also recognize the calling to share that good news with others. Lives changed by Christ, changing lives by Christ. We welcome you to this podcast where we want to equip you to live in the reality of a life changed by Christ. Disciple-making is at the core of a church's calling, and we want to take advantage of every resource we can to encourage you today. We invite you to join us for a service Sundays at 10.15 a.m., Wednesdays 6.30 p.m. Our church is located at 5534 Locust Hill Road in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. Our website is locusthillchurch.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let us know how we can encourage you. We are six episodes into our Gentle and Lowly staff conversations. I've enjoyed the conversation around the table, allowing our staff to share their insights as we've read Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. We're grateful for our listeners, both within our church and our friends who join us in lots of different places. The podcast is now available on all the different platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the Podbean site, our church website. We try to post this on our Facebook page each morning when it releases. So however you discover the podcast, we're grateful to have all of you here. So beginning in this episode, we are going to attempt two chapters. We've been walking through pretty much one chapter each week. So our pace may be a little bit quicker to make this happen. Our goal is somewhere around 20 minutes. The timer is on the screen. Staff, can we do it? Let's see. All right, Jason, let's jump in. You kick off the conversation. So chapter six um, references John six thirty seven as it starts out, and and that particular passage of scripture is um, is Jesus speaking. He has just fed the five thousand. He has just walked on water. He's just told his disciples, "I am the bread of life." And then he says he says this this statement: "All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out." And that part, I will never cast out, is really the context of chapter six. And so, Andy, um, just kind of starting off with you, as you read the first half of John six thirty seven, all that the Father gives me will come to me. What are some truths that emerge from just the first half of that scripture verse for you? Well, I mean, the first word jumps right out at you. It says all. Doesn't mean most. Doesn't mean those that have made themselves worthy. It's that all God said. I'm giving these to you, Jesus. And he says, all, not most, that the Father gives me. Uh, so the wandering sinner, no matter how bad you think you have been, his grace, God chose us first. It says, the Father gives to me. So God loved us first, and he chose to give the grace. So it even uh, makes us think about Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. So it's by grace we are saved, and we are his workmanship. So God chose us. He's doing the work. And he gave them to Jesus. Boy, that's a great place to be. And he says, will come to me. So you think about it. When Jesus says something will happen, it's going to happen. So nothing will thwart his power. Amen. That's right. That's good. I love how you brought in you know, love in, into that answer. That was um, how everything is rooted in love. Um, Michael, at the bottom of page 61 in chapter 6, um, Orland gives us an excerpt from John Bunyan's book, Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. And in that excerpt, 
the question is, what fears keep people from coming to Jesus? How do those fears demonstrate a misunderstanding of his invitation to come? You know, I was just reading in Bunyan recently, said no one around the table here. So <laughs> I think this one kind of intimidated us a little bit. But I actually did pull this up even this morning and was looking at this book. It actually, it's really good. You have to update the English to understand it. But that key there, what fear keeps people from coming to Jesus, to think that John Bunyan was writing this so many years ago, uh, just that fear that he will cast us out. And emphasizing that statement, I will never cast out. And so as Ortland pointed out, he said Bunyan was really good at taking one verse and writing a book about it and did just that. But I think it's a great reminder for us, and we've touched on this already so far in the podcast, just people walking in that freedom of that relationship with the Lord, not feeling like it's a performance-based thing that God loves me today because I'm doing everything just right, not today because I'm doing everything wrong. So uh, that full explanation there is focused on God not casting us out. So Jason, let me toss it back to you then. The central theme of this chapter is found in that phrase used at the end of John 6, 31, what I was just highlighting there. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So what are some of those objections that people give for their unworthiness of coming to Christ? What makes it hard for us to believe that? I think, you know, we all have objections. We all think that um, that we're the worst sinner. Uh, we all think that we're the, the only ones dealing with sin. And so those objections are, I'm too great of a sinner, or maybe it's I'm backsliding way too much, or um, maybe it's even I've really really just messed up so much that uh, God can't forgive me. And so there's just, there's a lot of those objections that we put up. Um, but I love, um, I love what, um, what Orland says when he says, fallen anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We are factories of fresh resistance to Christ's love. Christ says, come to me. He doesn't say anything else. He just says, come to me. He accepts us, but it's hard for us to, to receive that. It's hard for us to believe that because we carry that burden. We carry that weight. And, and so it, you know, we've messed up and it's hard for us to look past that. But Jesus says, you can look past it. Right. I love that picture there. Factories of fresh mm -hmm. resistance. It's like if if we don't have enough reasons, we create more. Right. Well, surely he doesn't. You know, that's on that previous side. But I've sinned. But I have sinned against you greatly. Your mercy. You yep. know, I'm a hard-hearted sinner. We come up with all these reasons. Surely God would cast me out. Right. And and he doesn't. And so thinking about that statement again in John six thirty seven, um, I will never cast out. Um, will kind of bringing you in. You know, that statement in John 6, 37 exists to calm us. And it calms us with the persevering nature of the heart of Christ. We've talked about the heart of Christ all throughout the first five chapters of this book. And so the question that you would kind of get is, do we find our hearts at times operating in a way similar to the dialogue that's given to us between us and Jesus on, on page 63 and 64? And how do the words found in John 6, 37 surprise us? You know, I think a lot of times we don't have this same kind of mock dialogue. When I read it, it felt real calm. Um, and a lot of times we find ourselves 
spiraling out of control for what, what Jason was saying. Like, we think we're the worst center, that our sin is unsurmountable. Um, and it makes me think of Hezek, King Hezekiah and Sennacherib. King Hezekiah got a letter from Sennacherib, and it says that he read it, and then he spread it out before the Lord. It didn't say he read it, and he read it again, and he read it again, and then he had it translated into 30 different languages so people, other people could read it and tell him what it meant. He just read it and, and laid it out before the Lord. And I think knowing that Christ never cast us out mm. gives us confidence we can be that, bring that before the Lord. So, Ray, just pinging off of that then, what do you believe to be the ultimate determining factor of our security in Christ's heart? Your hold of him, his hold of you, what scripture teaches? Well, there's no doubt that we, we, we grasp the him, but he holds on to us. As he said, in, uh, he uses um, Psalm 63, 8, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Uh, as I was thinking about um and I, just being secular, the Indiana Jones movie where uh, his father grabs him and says, Indy, concentrate. <laughs> you know, basically, I'm holding, I've got you now. Yep. And, and I, I thought about that. And, and then I look at Psalms 103, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to get angry and full of unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us, uh, nor remain angry forever for his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our rebellious acts as far away from us as east to west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. And that kind of backs up what the, because it, it in the book he's talking about a father in a swimming pool. The, the, the child has the grip, but the father is holding on. Uh, and, and, and so God is holding on to us. Yeah. So I want to pull in from page 66, 65 and 66. We have come more deeply to the doctrines of the perseverance of the heart of Christ. So Tracy, what does Ortland mean when he's talking about the perseverance of the heart of Christ? What does this mean for our lives? Well, I think most importantly, when we're truly his, he never gives up on us, never lets us go. Um, I think sometimes we get in a mindset he's just going to get frustrated finally and just say, I'm done trying to pursue you, but he doesn't. Um, I love that it makes the point of loving us. It's not just what he's supposed to do. It's his greatest desire. Um, we don't have to achieve a certain status with him if we're his child and where he is, and right. that's the end of it. Um, bottom line, he's never given up. No, he just persevered. Yeah, Orland throws in the, but I, mm -hmm. raise your objections. None can threaten these invincible words. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So as we transition then into chapter 7, really focusing on Hosea 11, we're going to bring the rest of our folks and just to pause here. I'm looking around the table. Amanda's not here. Who is down there? <laughs> we didn't hear you in chapter 6, but... I. <laughs> I am a man. <laughs> Duh. Yeah, okay. So who do we have for chapter seven sitting down on that end? It's Ralph. It's me. Ralph is joining us today. I thought that was good. So, <laughs> so as we get into chapter seven, we actually have Ralph with us. Ralph and Amanda lead our children's ministry. So uh, we do have a limited time yes. for answering these questions. The timer is on the screen. And so. I will be taking the rest of it. Oh, no. <laughs> Jason, we're going to jump in for chapter 7. So good thing we're starting with Will. Okay, you know? good. Um, 
Michael, as you referenced, chapter 7 does bring in Hosea 11, and it's talking about Christ, God's love for Israel. And uh, one of the verses that's highlighted is, part of the verse says, My heart recoils within me, my compassion grows warm and tender. And so, Will, the reason we feel as if divine wrath can easily be overstated is that we do not feel the true weight of sin. That's Ortland's quote. Two-part question. When do we feel the weight of our sin? And why do we not feel the full weight and horror of our sin? So I, I believe we feel the full weight of our sin when we get out of perspective of who God is. Um, and we try to humanize God and we try to put him in our own perspective because we fail all the time and we can't, we can't bear the burden of our sin on our own. But the times that we really do get to experience um, the grace and mercy of God to take our, our sin away is when we put him back in right perspective and realize how big God is and how powerful he is and that he's sovereign over our life and he's going to care for us and he's going to show compassion to us. Mm. Mm, that's good. And, you know, bringing Michael and Ray in together because there's a two-part question here. Um, Orland talks about divine ferocity and divine tenderness. And so his quote is, and just as we can hardly fathom the divine ferocity awaiting those out of Christ, it is equally true that we can hardly fathom the, the divine tenderness already resting now on those in Christ. So uh, I'm going to give the questions to both of you and then you guys can wrestle uh, as to who gets the, the last word. Michael, your question is, what do Christ's holiness and purity mean for the way he feels about the sin of those who do not belong to him. And Ray, contrasting that, what do his holiness and purity mean for the way he feels about the sin of those who do belong to him? So Michael, you go first. I think the main thing is the fact that you use ferocity in a question, <laughs> in a quote. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't see that coming, but... <laughs> We're expanding our vocabulary. No, so what what does this mean for those that do not belong to him? Well, if God is holy, he cannot overlook our sin. Mm -hmm. And his holiness means if he is a good judge, he has to judge our sin. Yeah. And there are those that would say, Well, God's loving, so he'll just you know overlook me. Well, he's not a good judge if that's the case. So in his holiness, he has to deal with sin. So for those that are not in Christ. It means his wrath, and that's the truth of Scripture that we see. So I get the negative one. Ray, you get the positive one. You get the hope-filled question, then what does it mean for those who are in Christ? How does it draw us back to him? Well, again, it's it's a great feeling to know that, um, as we said, the last question, that God is always reaching out to you right. and, and, and Jesus Christ. Uh and going back to the last chapter, though, it's, it says coming to him is the only requirement. Yeah. And what, what a super, I mean, that, that's it. I mean, there's no requirement. Yeah. Right. And he's seeking you. No matter what you do or where you've been or what kind of, how dirty you are, he's seeking you. And, and, and it says, the, and, and actually, in the book, says, the worse we are, the more he feels and the, and the more, uh, he feels more toward you and drawn more to you. Right. And, and, and even if you're living a life, I mean, it, that's one thing, but 
You know, that's something like we said before. There are some people say, well, I, you don't know what I've done. Well, God mm-hmm. knows, but he still wants to be with you. Right. He points to good mm-hmm. ones saying, you know, God's anger is pointed toward our sin, not right. toward us yes. or in him, because he wants us to walk in holiness. He calls us to imitate him. I just, I know, you know, you're going to have a question for a man, duh, in just a minute, but I can't help. But as Ray was talking, you know, just to rethink a couple chapters ago where we're in the hole and we're, we're in the hole of sin and we're trying to dig ourselves out. Well, Christ's compassion and his mercy, he wants to get in the hole with us to help us dig ourselves out. I just can't help but remember that. That's so. I did have a dad joke before the session, but I'm going to save that for now. So I'm tied oh, that. oh, that was perfect. All right, Ralph, we're going to pull you in. Hosea 11, 7 through 9. We have all the elements. God's own people amid their sinfulness with reference to God's heart and explicit affirmation of God's holiness. In what ways does Hosea 11 surprise you about God's holiness? For me particularly, words are important. So I'm going to sit on the word surprise that you used. Um, In some ways, I shouldn't be surprised by the actions of God uh, because he is holy. He's pure. He's true. He's just. Mm -hmm. He's without sin. He literally is everything that I am not. Um, Does it surprise me when he does something that I want it? No. It doesn't surprise me. It actually puts me more in awe and wonder of who he is. This passage in Hosea is clearly demonstrated on the cross by Christ as he's being mocked, beaten, and suffers for those that are persecuting him. He pleads to the Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. For me, this is exactly why God is God and worthy of our praise. Um, True, I'm made in the image of God. I have the ability to demonstrate compassion and love, but as scripture says, even my besties are but filthy rags before a holy God. That's good. So this is exactly why he is God and I am not. Does it surprise me? Not really. Just puts me more in awe and wonder. Now, I'm sorry, but I really have to read this passage. I know we're running out of time, but this, this hit me. The sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us. The dam breaks. It is not our loving loveliness that wins his love. It's our unlovingness. Our hearts gasp to catch up with this. It is not how the world around us works. It is not how our own heart works. But we bow in humble submission, letting God set the terms by which he will love us. It's a great paragraph yeah, that wraps up that. I'm going to let Katina just respond to that then. So how does God's full responsibility for our salvation give him all the glory? Well, just to think about how in the both of these chapters, one that shows us that nothing, nothing can we do Will he cast us out? And then our sins, where it says on page 74 at the top, it says that his compassion grows warm and tender and light his people's sins. How um, or who could have imagined this is who God's um, most is most is like? I can't even say that. Um, 
He loves us so much. And, you know, we we put on him, we kind of say, oh, God's like this. God's like that. You know, and, oh, he's going to be upset with me that I sinned. He's going to be upset with me that I did this or that. That's not him at all. Like you said before, he is upset with our sin, yes, but he's never upset with us. He loves us and becomes even more compassionate toward us when we do upset, you know, do things. We can do nothing to save us. Only God can do that. He sent his son down on this earth to save us of our sins, died on the cross and rose again so that our sins would be covered and we can do nothing except come to him. That's all we can do. Tied in with that, I want to close with a quote from J.I. Packer, Knowing God, it says, There is great incentive to worship and love God and the thought that for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend, desires to be my friend, and has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. So I think that's what we've captured in this session, the desire of God to be our friend. Great job, we did it. Two chapters in one session, even with Ralph with us. <laughs> so for those reading along in the book, there's so much more that we could have discussed. If you were walking through the chapter with us, you would see many things that we had to jump over. But hopefully we covered enough to give a good glimpse of the chapter. We really do appreciate everyone joining us. The reason we set out to create these episodes was to take advantage of one more means of discipling our congregation and sharing these reflections with our friends. So we hope these episodes are helping you to live out, change life by Christ. See you next time.